This is a difficult thing. I, I know that we're having a class right now, or Todd is having a class uh, where he examines different miracles of Scripture and he tries to, uh, to apply them to our lives, what lessons we can learn. But it gets difficult sometimes when you, when you look at a story like the one we're going to look at and try to figure out what, what is it. It's a cool story. It's a great VBS uh, skit. The, the, the problem comes in we are looking at it hundreds of years later going, um, how does this have any relevance uh, to my life? What am I supposed to draw out of this for life now? Obviously, uh, what's going to happen uh, in this story is that Elisha is going to raise a young man from the dead. I say obviously, I'm assuming you know this story, but that's a big assumption sometimes. And so what you got, what we have in this story is um, uh, what, we, what we just heard was that this lady, a well-to-do lady, uh, married to an old man. That's all we know in the text about the man is he's old. The servant of Elisha says he's an old man. So a, a, a woman, well-to-do, married to an old man without children who has the gift of hospitality. So we are in 2 Kings chapter 4, picking up where he left off, verse 11. One day he came there, Elisha, and he turned into the chamber and he rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. And when he had called her, she stood before him and he said to him, Say now to her, see, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word be spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, it's almost like he's talking pastor. It's a strange thing. But Gehazi answered, well, she has no son and her husband is old. That's a pretty common theme in scripture, actually, isn't it? And he, and he said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. And he said, at this season, about this time next year, you will embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. It's like, don't get my hopes up like this. But the woman conceived and she bore a son about that time, uh, uh, the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. Then, almost immediately, according to the story, something goes south. When the child had grown, I don't know how old this would be, but when the child had grown, he went one day with his father among the reapers, and he said to his father, oh, my head, my head, apparently a terrible headache of some kind caused by something. The father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him. And went out. Then she called her husband, one of the weird transactions of the story, interactions, called her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys. I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, Why will you go to him today? It's neither new moon nor Sabbath. This isn't a religious day, right? She said, All is well. I don't know why. Then she saddled the donkey. And said to her servant, urge the animal on, do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. I don't know if the husband even knows the son's dead. It doesn't say she had told him anything about this. That's why the interaction seems so strange to me. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, look, there's the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say, is it well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered the servant, all is well. That's not true. 
But she wanted nobody but Elisha. When she came to the mountain, to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet, fell at his feet, and Gehazi came to push her away. That was a kind of an immodest or disrespectful posture. But the man of God said, leave her alone. She's in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me anything. And then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I start this? Did I get my hopes up, right? Did I not say, don't deceive me, don't tell me this? He said to Gehazi, tie up your garment, take your staff in your hand and go. If you meet anybody, do not greet him. If anybody greets you, do not even respond and, my, and lay my staff on the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as your servant live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. And Gehazi went on ahead, laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life, and therefore he returned to meet him and told him, the child is not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. He went in and he shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. And then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth to his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands. As he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. And then he got up again and walked back and forth in the house, pacing, went up and stretched himself out on him again. And the child sneezed seven times. The only time anybody in scripture ever sneezes seven times at once. That's probably the sound in your house every day this week, probably. This is the only time in scripture. The child opened his eyes and then he summoned Gehazi and said, call the Shunammite. And he called her. And when she came to him, he said, pick up your son. And she came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. She picked up her son and went out. Great story. Great story. Legendary stuff, right? It's, it's absolute affirmation. Elisha is God's man. He's endued with power from God. God's working through him and using him. But, but, but what good is that to us in 2023? You don't have a preacher who can do this. You don't, we don't have anybody around who can do this. Something from years ago that we marvel at, but what good is it? One thing that's interesting about it to me is God does incredible things through Elisha that affects the nation. Right? In the, in the chapter before this, he he provided water for the army when they were trying to attack the enemy, right? To keep them hydrated. I get that. The army, big deal, right? But God is also concerned and dispatches his prophet for the sake of a simple woman and her husband and the child. God's energy, God's strength works through Elisha in her circumstance too. For some reason, as the story starts, Elisha goes to Shunem. You can uh, see this on the map. This is Shunem. This is where Grant's favorite Bible character lived. This is Abishag, the woman, uh, the single woman, the virgin that slept with David in his days as he got old. That's the only person we know from Shunem, but Grant appreciates Shunem. Um, and, and so why he's there, I don't know, but that's where the woman is from, a Shunemite woman. Uh, and, and, uh, and we know, again, her husband's old. She has no child, but she has a great gift of hospitality, it seems. 
Um, she decides to, to, to talk her husband into not only are we providing meals as he goes by, she's apparently a great cook, and every time Elisha's around, she, he turns into her house and she feeds him. This is kind of hospitality in the first century, right? Or in the older times of Scripture. And then all of a sudden, she's convinced that he is a prophet over time, a man of God, and she decides to build an entire room for him to stay in on her roof. And her husband does that, and they've got this thing going. And that's when everything then goes weird because Elisha decides, you know what, I'm grateful for your hospitality, I appreciate it, and I want to do something for you. And that's when he promises her a child, gives her the birth announcement, and even does the gender reveal all there in one swoop. I'm amazed by Elisha in this story, I think we're supposed to be, but I'm also amazed by this woman who has this gift of hospitality. We're told in the New Testament that this woman, uh, that hospitality is a great value. It's one of the things our elders are supposed to model for us as elders is hospitality, which the word house comes into that, and it's to open up your home and open up your life, to share your life with other people, hospitality. But in the New, in the New Testament, it says to offer hospitality to one another without grumbling, Apparently, sometimes we, we kind of grumble under our breath when we have to open up our homes or be nice to people. You're supposed to do that even without grumbling. But this is where I think in the, in the New Testament, this becomes a big deal. Notice in 1 John chapter, or 3 John, verses 5 through 8, Beloved, it's a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers. Talking about these preachers that go around preaching in all these churches. Strangers as they are to you who testified to your love before the church. You'll do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. They have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that they may be fellow workers for the truth. He was talking about opening up your home as they come through town and providing them a place. That kind of hospitality was necessary in the first century without any ends, or not many at least. And this woman was like that. She was one of these people, recognized Elisha as this special person. And said, I want to I provide for you, not just a meal, but I want to provide for you a home when you drive through here. When you drive through here, when you come through here, right? Come up to my roof, stay in your own room. It's got a lamp in it. You can read till late at night. And Elisha receives that hospitality, and it motivates him to want to bless her for it. This is what happens when you start opening your life to other people in hospitality. They want to respond in gratitude. So Elisha says, what can be done for her? He just knows he's got to respond to this and, and opens the door. I know the, I know the king. I know the commander of the army. And she says, I don't need any of that. I've got my own. I'm self-sufficient. This woman is a self-sufficient woman. But she doesn't have a child, Yahazi points out, and God blesses her because of Elisha. How many, how many characters of Scripture are like this that they, could, they, were, they seem to be barren until a certain point of their life? Sarah, the one who started the whole line, was this way. Rebecca was this way. Manoah's wife was this way. Elkanah's wife, Hannah, was this way before she had Samuel. You even have in the New Testament Elizabeth and Zechariah. And each time it ends up being a boy and it carries on the family line. But God demonstrates his care for people this way. And so she has sort of like a Solomon moment when God says, ask me for whatever you want. And this woman says, I don't need a thing. And Elisha just has to come up with an idea and uses his servant to do that. 
And when she loses that child, when she loses that child, she is bold. She is willing to just absolutely knock on the door of heaven, come straight into the face of Elisha. We're told this in the New Testament too. I'll give you these verses. I hope they're up there next. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet with without sin. Let us then, since we have a high priest like this, who knows what it's like to be human, let us go in confidence and draw near to the throne. Don't, don't tri- tremble in there and don't just tippy-toe in there as if you don't want to disturb him. You've got confidence. He knows what you need. He knows that you need help. So when you need help, go get it boldly into the throne of God. And you'll receive mercy and find grace in your time of need. This woman knew this principle. I'm going to go straight to the prophet. I'm not going to I'm not going to mess with anybody else straight to the prophet. And I love how she does this. Ephesians says the same thing. This is according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Don't pray puny prayers. Don't hesitate to go into the presence of God. Do so reverently, respectfully, but go boldly knowing that he wants to hear from you because he longs to. For Elisha in this story, it's interesting God didn't tell him what was about to happen like he usually does. But what I like about him is he's willing to receive hospitality. We often talk about this. We need to open up our homes. We need to open up our lives and share our lives with each other. But what is often not said is you need to be willing to receive hospitality. Many of us don't. Many of us are not real comfortable with it. And so we, we kind of we kind of avert ourselves from it. I can't tell you the number of times you ask people to come to your home or something, share a meal with you, and they just won't do it. They just won't come. How many times do they decline before you stop asking? How many times? Elisha was provided this, and he took her up on it. He graciously did. This is a hard thing for a lot of people to receive hospitality, but he did. And we're told to weep with those who weep. But the, in order to do that, you've got to listen to them and hear them and know what's going on in their life. We're told to rejoice with those who rejoice. But these aren't big ticket items that we're talking about from this story. Regardless of what happened between Elisha and this couple, it had no bearing on the storyline of Kings. This story could be taken out of Kings and you'd lose nothing. There's nothing that's gained from it. It just leaves an impression about Elisha. It leaves an impression about God, but it doesn't move along the story of God. But it talks about God is concerned even about some unnamed woman in Shunem. What difference does it make in the storyline of God whether she has kids or not? We don't know the name of the kid. Wasn't in the lineage of Jesus. Who cares? God cares. God cares. He comes to you. You're not maybe in the center of the story. You're not carrying along some evangelistic thing where bunches of people come to God through you, but he's concerned about you, period. And then I get to thinking, as a New Testament believer, looking at this through the New Testament lens, there is a painting, a famous painting by a famous artist that I don't 
is Frederick Layton is his name. Here's what it looks like. I love this painting. It's Elisha raising the Shunammite son. I want you to notice this guy. The, the, the colors in this thing are very eerie. It's, it's like a lifeless body right here already. Rigor mortis set in or whatever we call it. Colors are a little uh. But what's impressive about this is Elisha doesn't, he doesn't say a prayer from a distance. He doesn't do some hocus pocus of anything. And it's not easy. It's one of the weirdest miracle stories. He, he gets up close and personal with death. I'm going to put my eye on his eye, lip on lip, face to face, hands on hands. I'm going to look death up close and personal. And that doesn't even do it. He then gets up from there and paces back and forth, and he gets there again. I mean, we're talking about he's got to get incredibly involved in what he's about to do to raise this boy back to life. Well, death and sin are universal. It's the problem of all of us in this room. It is the absolute equalizer of all humanity. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory. Is that you? That's you. That's me. That's all of us. And all of us will pay for it with death. And so God says, what am I going to do if I have sin claiming my entire creation and I want to have fellowship with them? I want to save them from sin. I want to save them from death. But he can't just say, well, just with a flip of my wrist, I take care of death. With a, with a flick of my wrist, I can just take care of sin. I just, I just look the other way and put sin under a carpet. He can't do that. So how does our God take care of our sin and death problem? He gets eye to eye, face to face, body to body, and experiences it. He defeats it. By losing to it. He defeats it by experiencing it. Comes straight into the world and he, and he lives around sinful humanity and he sees the misery and he sees the failure and the rebellion and he lives among all the consequences of it. And then, and then, while he never sinned himself, he did experience the full brunt of the consequence of it by looking death right in the eye. And there were times in the garden where he's pacing back and forth after he looks, he's looking straight at the death that's coming and it's terrifying to him and he gets up and he paces and he comes back and he does it again and he gets up and he paces and he comes back and he does it again and then he goes through with it the entire way, all the way point to a grave three days. And then... He becomes the only victim of death that comes back from it. And he carries a message with him. We are going to follow suit too. We may experience physical death, but we will never have to face that spiritual death because Jesus did it for us and it wasn't well from a distance 
Like because, you know, some of those miracles are from a distance. The centurion's son. Don't even come to my house. You can just, you can just do it from a distance. Just lob me a miracle, right? Just lob me a miracle from afar. I believe you can do it. And he could. Why couldn't he do that with sin's atonement and death's impact? Like Elisha back in the Old Testament, he had to show something of the nature of God. I think the story, while I'm amazed at the woman and I'm amazed at Elisha, I'm really amazed at how God chose to deliver this boy from that death by having his prophet look at eye to eye, go right up to it, face it, and deliver him. Almost a little hint and a shadow of what it's going to take for God to do that for us. And aren't you grateful? Because you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us loved among them at one time, gratifying its cravings and nature and all that stuff. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ, not, not by having to die the same way Jesus did, but having to die through Christ. He faced it eye to eye so that you never will have to. And I'm grateful, and I know you are too. And this story is just a little bit of a foreshadow of what Jesus did for all of us, and we're grateful on this Sunday night. If there's anyone who, for whatever reason, you've not responded, you've not, you, you, you still are in the absolute throes of where sin is and where death is going, there's anyone still headed toward that showdown of sin's consequence and death's full brunt? There's no need to continue on that. Boldly go to God. He's more than eager to rescue you, more even than you're willing to be rescued. A detour has been provided by a Jesus who did it for us. Don't face sin's consequence and death. Don't face it. You don't have to. He did it for you. And if for some reason you haven't accepted that yet, by all means do that tonight as we stand, as we sing together.